the history of personal computing. History, history, history. History of Personal Computing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another glorious outing in the history of personal computing. I'm your host today, and I'm David Grealish. I'm a Gemini. My favorite color is blue, and I love Star Wars. Oh, and I also love some pit barbecue, especially ribs. Now you know a few of the answers to my own online security questions, so let's introduce my co-host, Mr. Jeff Salzman. Care to hey. share any of your security question answers, Jeff? Yes, Nancy. That's, that's <laughs> the answer. The question is, uh, you know, they get so obscure on those questions. Uh, like, well, Nancy could be the answer to, who was the person who sat in the third column, fifth row of your history class in eighth grade? Um, like, do nobody you mind, would guess that. Do you mind just repeating your mother's maiden name and your the last four <laughs> social, please? All the answers are Nancy. <laughs> You know, they say, uh, actually, what you do is you sort of, you answer them, I guess, but you answer, you ask your own questions and answer them, regardless of what the question says. But right now, I got to remember two questions, the question I answered and the question <laughs> I was supposed to answer too. That, yeah, that seems like that would just get really confusing. Um, so let's, uh, let's start off with just some, some discussion about what's new. Anything new with you? Uh, what's new is now old and I got to wait till next year, uh, over the weekend. This oh, you're week tweeting I... all about this. I was, and, and I still got to finish my, um, my blog post on, on the Vintage Volts website. Um, I attended the White Rose Game Room Show, the, I believe it's the 18th annual. Uh, well, it's, it's been a while. Uh, they've had it for quite a while. I've been attending for Oh, yeah, the York Show. I kept eight. seeing that. The York Show is the webpage, uh, yorkshow.com, but the White Rose Game Room Show is the official name of the show, and it's just two days of pinball and game room stuff well, you know pay one price play all day um and you just kind of have fun you and a lot of the machines there are available for purchase God, it's or, crazy you're so lucky you have this kind of stuff around you and I, yes, I, it's, I don't it's know why this, this doesn't happen here if i really wanted to lose some weight i could walk there but i don't want to lose weight because i'm not a loser yeah seriously I never see anything like this in my whole giant southeast area i've lived in most of my adult life Huh. Anyway, great pictures there on the site. Oh, thank you. I have more to add eventually. On that site? <laughs> on, on their site. No, I have more to add to it, which is probably not much different than the pictures they add. But I love their time lapse. You can watch the whole thing in 11 minutes. Oh, really? Two days. Yeah, they have a time lapse video. Um, and if it's not on their website now, they had a link to it on their Facebook hmm. page, I believe. But it's great. You can just watch the whole thing. You know, in oh, 11 I'll minutes, check it out. Much, both days. Did you, um, was there any like, uh, like what was the oldest gaming equipment you saw there? Well, some of the oldest ones were the Bagatelle tables, which were the, the, the boxes that had the, uh, little white balls that you would, you know, you would pull a plunger to run them around, but they would fall and catch themselves like where nails are, that nails would like cup a hole and they would fall in. You get points. You, you have to do your own manual scoring. Hmm. And the newest thing they had was the latest and greatest, um, what the Walking Dead pinball machine by Stern. 
Uh, yeah, I saw something about that too. I think somewhere else in the news. $6,000 if you wanted to buy one. <laughs> They're not cheap anymore. So I have a couple of things. Well, two, I guess. It's a couple things to mention. So, and both pretty big news, I think, is uh, first off, and some of our listeners may have seen me tweeting crazily about this, is I decided to release the, the PDF ebook version of my book for free. And, uh, and I, all I know is I guess I got a decent enough response to have to upgrade my uh, Dropbox account because <laughs> of okay. bandwidth. So I take that as a, a good thing. You know, it's only 10 bucks a month and I'm not necessarily going to keep it that way. We'll just see how demand is. But um, I just decided, you know, um, I haven't really been selling any in a while. I still have some of the printed ones left. And um, I'd rather people get it than trying to make a few bucks here and there. And that the, you know, the plus side is maybe, you know, people will donate here and there or buy the printed book. And that's actually happened a little bit already. Well, that's good that people still feel that it's great that you did that. You took the first step and they in kind returned a little bit and gave you, you know, a little something uh, in return for your efforts. Yeah. But the biggest thing is just, I'd love to get it in more people's hands. So, so everybody out there, if you don't have it, feel free to get it Uh link in, uh, I guess I'll be in the show notes now or on my page uh, and tell, tell people about it. And then the second thing is I finally finished the fifth episode of Stan Veet's history of the personal computer audiobook podcast, which is a very exciting chapter, in fact, called The Early Days of Apple Computer. And that is what a achievement that is that I got that done. Well, now I, I'm going to have to stop and go download that. So oh, I can my God. I mean, I'm just I'm just so, I guess, perfectionist. I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying it's perfect, but actually, I re-listened to it on the way home, and there's a couple of audio places where it sort of gets louder, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's not perfect, the audio leveling in there leaning, all the way leaning into the microphone a bit as you read yeah it. exactly and some places where i anyway but you know what it's done and i think it's great quality overall and and that's basically the bottom line is i want to start getting these things out regularly and they can't be, they can't be perfect so they just got to be good and not perfect so so anyway, that's good news and that's done so anyway on with the show then let's see some some regular things we need to tell our regular listeners especially though some new listeners is that our podcast is a bi-weekly virtual guide that we do in both audio and on the web about the history and development of arguably the single most important technological advancement of the last 40 years, the personal computer. But just what is a personal computer these, these days? And that's just it. It continues to evolve. So we're going over what we think are the most significant uh, ones one by one. Yeah, our idea was to create a unique new podcast about old computers and their history. So we decided to make a combination audio podcast and website, plus highlight related eBay auctions in each episode to gauge current collectability and values. We try to keep each show to about an hour and cover two systems, generally discussed in a date order with tiers. Tiers are in reference to the tiers of personal computing, which have evolved some in the last few years. We approach each system like that of a museum tour guide. So first we give you the basics of the system along with its history, just like the placard that you might see for a physical museum display. Then we elaborate further, telling you more detail and the stories which bring the computers back to life. This podcast supplements our blog and then the blog adds value back to the podcast. So make sure you do please visit the blog and you'll see a lot more details there and more information and so on. And our show notes, of course. So moving right into it, we are starting off, this show is going to be a little bit unusual. So this is the nature of our show is, as we just said, generally we're going to have two machines that we each you know talk about one and we're trying to generally follow uh, 
a, a date order going through the different tiers, like the first tier being desktops and then the second one laptops and so on. There's always exceptions. This show, we're doing single board computers and we're going to be doing four specific ones. Um, as I mentioned, so the first tier of personal computing started with desktop microcomputers and then came portables, which established the second tier. But there was another category of micros which didn't uh, fit exactly into that, that first tier. Arguably, they were still first tier devices, but it might be more accurate, accurate to refer to them as the uh, cost-reduced desktops. They were the bare bones systems of the 1970s, the entry level, the single board computers. And they're fun stuff. A single board system is a complete computer residing on a single circuit board. It contains a microprocessor, memory, input, output, and other features that a fully functional computer requires. Many single board computers were designed as demonstration or development systems for education or to be used as embedded computer controllers. A few significant single boards did become consumer products though, uh, mostly to hardware hobbyists. So today's show, we're gonna focus on single board computers and we've chosen two each to discuss, though as always, there were many others. Two systems especially come to mind, which we are not gonna be covering today, and they are the Apple One and the Rockwell AIM-65. Yeah, I'm sorry, we can't talk about everything. We could, but it just would, the show would never end. So <laughs> we would definitely have to go to a weekly show, Jeff, if we try to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we have to make choices and not to say the Rockwell AIM-65 wasn't significant, but, you know, it, it's out there. You can easily find some quick reading on it. In any case, the Apple One, of course, we were gonna we will cover briefly in an upcoming episode when we talk about specifically the Apple II. And then, of course, that always branches into more about the company. Of course, Apple... I think we sort of preliminarily discussed this, Jeff. Probably Apple will have its own show. I would, I would kind of think Atari, Commodore, and so on. There I don't is know. enough. Yeah, there's enough to go around for each of those to have their own show. But you know, then again, maybe uh, uh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> you know, because maybe we'll do Apple II, which we'd have to hit on the Apple one and so on. But yeah, we'd probably then later do a Macintosh show. I don't know. And, you know, Atari, other things. So anyway, Jeff, you're going to start it off, and you're talking about the NASCOM one and the OSI Superboard. Yes, I am. Um, well, let's start with the NASCOM one. It was the first in a series of two single board computer kits released between 1977 and 1979 by NASCO in the United Kingdom. They were both based on the Zilog Z80 microprocessor and included a keyboard and video interface, along with a serial port and two 8-bit parallel ports. The system was unique for the time since it included a full real keyboard and a video interface, um, which was uncommon at the time. Uh, hobbyists had to hand solder about 3,000 joints on the board to, to put the thing together in the first place. Yeah, that seems crazy when I read that. But I mean, obviously oh. people did it and people were very uh, enthralled with that system. Yes, they loved it. You know, they, they probably didn't, you know, bat an eye or, or you know, at all. <laughs> they probably just enjoyed soldering everything together and, and especially if it actually worked when they powered it up. Uh, some other interesting notes about the NASCOM, um, the, the, I'll call them the, the nerd public or those who were reading computer magazines in the late 1970s, not many of us were, um, were first introduced to the NASCOM one in the May 1978 issue of a UK magazine called Personal Computer World. And we'll have a link to the show notes for the front cover. That's the only thing I could find was a front cover picture for that magazine. Oh, I, was about, I was about to look on eBay UK and do a search while you were talking. Oh, go ahead. I'll continue <laughs> to talk about the NASCOM, um, especially some of the, the stuff that I found interesting. Um, you know, well, one thing I found interesting with NASCOM 
is, are the conventions used to operate them. Now, I'll admit I don't have much knowledge of computing in those days in the, in the late 70s because uh, I got my first computer in 1981. But it certainly was different than even what many of us remember in the early 80s computers. The NASCOM operated with a rudimentary command set that was comprised of single letters, and it was a um, kind of a language or an operating system called NASBUG, N-A-S-B-U-G. Um, the single letters were followed by a hex memory location if needed, and then you press the enter key. For example, to set a breakpoint in program execution, you would type the command B followed by a four-digit hex memory location you wanted the breakpoint to occur and then hit enter. To execute a program, you would use the command E and the memory location where the program starts. Um, most programs ran from location 0000 at the very beginning of memory. And, you know, you could type in programs, but if you wanted to load a program from an external serial device, which most likely was probably a punch card reader or paper tape, you would just type L. And that NASCOM operating system, NASBUG, would know to start loading from the serial port. Um, and future versions of the NASCOM, like the NASCOM 2, uh, would have had an enhanced command set, which they called NAS-SYS, N-A-S-S-Y-S, hmm. and would have additional commands to be able to do more like having commands, a command like S for save because the hardware supported saving your programs directly. And we'll have a link in the show notes that shows you some of those NASBUG and NAS-SYS um, commands and, and what it was like. So you didn't have basic running. You could probably load basic. In fact, I believe you did. You were able to load basic into it. Uh, I didn't get to play around with that much myself, but you can have, you know, once you load things up, then you're not really working with the, the NAS operating system or whatever it's called for the lack of a better word. And you're, you're going in to do what you would normally do huh. when the computer's running software. I also include in the show notes, or we also include in the show notes, a NASCOM 2 in operation. Just couldn't find much information on the 1, unfortunately. Hmm. Although I do have an eBay auction for the 1. Anyway, I'll, I'll continue on. I wanted to run NASCOM in emulation because you may know by now I love trying these things out. If I can't have the real thing, I'm jumping right to the emulators. Um, when I looked for ways to run the NASCOM in emulation... I could only find a useful emulator in MESS. You've heard me talk about MESS before. Um, there is a standalone NASCOM 1 emulator, but it doesn't operate in 64-bit Microsoft Windows. So I would have to dig up an old computer, yeah, like I have one around, right, um, <laughs> that runs 32-bit Windows. Windows 95 would be perfect. Windows XP would be perfect um, and get it running. I just unfortunately wasn't able to, to try it out. So it left that a little bit useless for me because I'm running Windows 8. In MESS, you can run the NASCOM 1, and it operates, but you can't really load anything with it. You can type stuff around. You can play with uh, NASBUG, um, but the NASCOM 2 emulation is a little more formidable. I didn't get very far with it because I was trying to get the NASCOM 1 stuff working. What was like the biggest limitations did you find out between the NASCOM 1 versus the NASCOM 2? Well, the NASCOM 2, I found, was just more of a... well, we're, we're, fully featured? Yeah, it's fully featured. You didn't have to really be technical with it. You could just, you had it. There was probably more vendor support for it because it, it earned its place because it, you know, stood on the, <laughs> it stood on the shoulders of the <laughs> NASCOM 1. 
Uh, yeah, doing it, Google searches for images, actually it looks like most of the ones I'm, you know, quick survey here are in cases and stuff. Yeah, it's like everybody had it. Well, you know, it's like it's like the Apple, you know, the Apple One. People used yeah. it, people bought it, but when the Apple II came out, that's what everybody shot for. Right. So it probably, you know, like I said, they were sold to like 79. It, you know, by the early 80s, I guess most people had probably abandoned these other than, you know, just playing around with them, nostalgia or something. Yeah, it'd still be nice to have one. And I, you know, it'd be great to, boy, it wouldn't be nice if Brill came out with a NASCOM kit. <laughs> hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Email Vince Briel at Briel.com. I'm not sure what his email is. My, in memory. Tell him we sent you and he'll say, who's that? Well, very cool. We learn. We learn. It's a nice little piece of history. And for us, it's across the pond. So that makes it unique and interesting to us from, you know, from our perspective. Oh, yeah. So I wonder if it... Um... Like that the YouTube video, which I haven't had a chance to look at it. Was it somebody in the UK or because I guess you'd have to convert the power and all that stuff to run it in the United States and video probably. Well, I don't know if he was from the UK. You know, actually, I didn't pay attention to that. He was showing the board. Uh, he he talks about the aspects of the board. You can see he has a separate keyboard connected to it, and he has power supply connected to it and stuff, and he has it connected to a monitor, and he launches it you kind of see the nasbug interface unless he upgraded it because you can actually upgrade that with you know rom updates um and he just showed a little bit of it operating he really didn't go full detail showed some activity and it's a neat little computer and if i had room and the money to get one i would probably have it you know talking about these and, and doing the research on these single board computers I'm really liking single board computers. I think there's a hole in my life where I wasn't playing around with these things and I should have been. Huh. Yeah, there's lots of videos on here. So I'm just quickly looking at it. So, and you know, I should have thought, you know, obviously anytime, like as we cover some of these other systems here, I see a video for a Kim one working. So, you know, pretty much if you have get more, more interested in any of these, you just quickly ought to do a YouTube search because it's probably there. Yeah. It's, it's great to see it. If you, if you really want to, know what it's like almost be there for it all righty so next up then is you also covered so the next one we covered and you chose was the ohio scientific that's right that's um a little more popular on this side of the uh, uh the pond so well and, uh, but not that known i mean other than really the hardcore hobbyists and people from that time frame yeah it is um I actually have a, an OSI myself, but not the kind of ones that we're talking about here. I have a C2POEM or something like that, a big hunking case. But anyway, I'm getting off track here. Um, Ohio Scientific Incorporated was a U.S.-based computer company that designed microcomputers from 1975 to 1981. The OSI Model 500 system was their earliest system, launched in 1977. It was a very simple single-board computer based on the MOS Technology 6502 processor, which we all love, but it lacked video circuitry, so a terminal had to be used to connect to it. All of the computers OSI went on to design used the 6502. In 1978, they released the Superboard 2. Let me backtrack here. The OSI Model <laughs> 500 system is, is basically what the they call the Superboard now, but it wasn't given that name until the Superboard 2 came out. So or I think it, I found it was also called the Super Kit. Super Kit? Yeah, it I was think a so. Kit. It was a kit. And and then of course it went on to be um 
you know, well, other available as a kit. Other OSI computers were based on it, and then, as you'll mention, other OSI computers were based on this. Yeah, they just keep improving and rebuilding, improving, embrace and extend their own products. Reading on in 1978, they read or they released the Superboard Two, also known as the Model 600. It was only available as a ready-built system. The Superboard One was a kit, and I think you could buy it um, maybe later assembled. On. Yeah, the Superboard 2 was a ready-built system, although the user had to build or buy a 5-volt external power supply. It included a keyboard right on board, right on the board. It was soldered right to it. Had 4K of RAM, had BASIC and ROM, and cost just $279. And see, now it's sounding more like the computers of the 80s, except it was not really yeah. encased. Although, they, they did create, OSI did create the Challenger 1P, and the Challenger 2P that basically used those Superboard 2 single-board computers, and they put them in a case for you with power supplies. Mm, yeah. They did the work for you. Yeah, 279 I mean, even in 1978, for, for what you got was a pretty good deal. But I guess, yeah. but again, it was limited to hobbyists where, you know, or you had to know somebody that could help you out with that power supply situation and maybe, well, obviously putting it in the case and yeah, some right. other stuff. 4K RAM, basic and ROM. I mean, what else could you buy at the time that had that? You could buy an Apple and a Pet, and they cost a lot of money. Yeah. And all you had to do is with, with this you know, $279 board is just hook it up to a monitor. Hmm. And, of course, some sort of input for um, the cassette interface and stuff. But still, the single board, it, you're right, it's hobbyist. And one thing I found interesting about the Superboard computers is that they only needed that 5-volt power supply to operate and not a series of plus and minus 12 volts or other complicated power supply requirements like in computers that started to appear in the early 80s and definitely the computers that are out today. And do you think that was because, um, I'm no engineer, but because they were single board? Is it could be because they were single board. Plus, I don't think they really supported uh, good sound or had any requirements for... Um, mechanical like, things inside of well, them or op amp op amp uh, circuitry which usually works with a plus and minus voltage simultaneously to do their job and usually um like sound would support op amps or any kind of amplification electronic amplification would use an op amp so with a single five volt power supply they were just able to keep everything at what they call ttl levels which was popular at the time so everything worked off the same single power supply now it's probably not a small power supply it was probably very big, but it was just that single voltage, which made it convenient because if the 5-volt power supply went bad, you just throw in another one without having to worry about you – know, you, you can actually build a 5-volt power supply with the right parts, and even at the time, you could probably do it at Radio Shack. Yeah, I would think so. What's more, the OSI Model 500, which is, as I mentioned, is now referred to as the Superboard 1, didn't have multi-pin independent I.O. ports. It had a serial port for communications and terminal connections and a 48-pin bus system. But if you wanted to easily interface it with sensor peripherals, you had to install a 6520 CIA to do so. Um, but at least the manufacturer conveniently provided an empty 40-pin socket to install it. <laughs> and if you were my, good at building My eyes are glazing system, over. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's a CIA? Uh, Com I think it stands for Complex Interface Adapter. It might be also known as PIA, Peripheral Interface Adapter. It's okay. sort of interchangeable. Actually, the 6520 is what you'll find in a lot of the Commodore computers to do interfaces to joysticks and, and other stuff. Okay. It, it, it goes hand-in-hand -hand with the 6502. All right. Sounds like, familiar, the 6520 part. Yes. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't think they make them anymore. But um, yeah, I mean, if you if you had a for, if you knew how to interface through a bus system, you were good to go. But if you wanted to have like a joystick to hook up to this, you would have had to put the sixty five twenty in so you can get directly readable inputs that would go high or low that you can read as part of the memory map. Um, so yeah, um, hardware hackers at the time and hobbyists would probably take advantage of that, but it didn't come included. Uh, later on, the Superboard 2 had additional interfacing capabilities and was able to interface with cassette storage through, of all things, the RS-232 port. And other interesting items to note while I'm on the Superboard 2 is, yeah, I already mentioned they can interface with the cassette storage to the RS-232 port. And the board was usually ordered a few weeks in advance and, and, and arrived in aluminum foil packaged in boxed styrofoam. <laughs> That's actually not, I mean, I guess not that unusual because I remember when I, um, when I first started collecting, so like 20 plus years ago, and I acquired that big haul from, a, it originally owned, been owned by an engineer at El Paso Gas. But there was a bunch of different circuits and boards and other stuff wrapped up that way. Aluminum foil was certainly in styrofoam uh, too, though. Dis was... Discharge. Well, certainly aluminum foil will certainly discharge uh, static, and of course the foam would probably create static. Yeah. Um, but I, I picture this you know, packaged in box styrofoam. The only way I picture that is you know peanuts, mm -hmm. styrofoam peanuts. I don't think they probably used styrofoam that was cut to fit the shape of the board. Maybe they did. Maybe they did. Uh, only people who bought it would know. It, it was also hand soldered at the factory, or at least one of the remarks from somebody who did a review on this, which I'll get to, noticed that all the solder joints looked like they were hand soldered. It wasn't, you know, it doesn't look like it was done with a wave solder machine, you know, in, like factory like level a sweat solder. shop there in Ohio. <laughs> Maybe they were in Ohio, <laughs> all places. But, you know, they probably really, of course, I don't know, but they probably hired teenagers and stuff, who knows, to... Well, that would be a great summer job, I tell you. Because they had to test them, I'm sure, before they shipped them. They tested them as long as they worked. They were yeah. good. Gee, I would work for there just for the computer. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you I'll give you 10 weeks of soldering. Yeah, just give me the computer. They might have done that. Well, continuing on, uh, there's a video review of the Superboard 2 in operation. We'll put a link to the YouTube video for that. And if you're interested in reading about the introduction of the Superboard from a period perspective... OSI had the Ohio Scientific Small System Journal within the pages of a magazine called the Micro 6502 Journal. And starting in issue 25, the first release of the Ohio Scientific Small Systems Journal can be found. And we have a link to a copy of that you can read online and see what that was all about. That's, hmm. you know, so people who bought their Ohio Scientific computers could start doing something with it with vendor support in a magazine. And keeping with the period perspective, the Superboard 2 was also fully reviewed by a new buyer, quote new, in Kilobald Microcomputing Magazine back in July 1979. It's rather interesting to read what people say about computers like this with, with such a fresh uh, viewpoint from that period of time. And we'll include a link to that too. So you can read what this guy had to say when he bought his computer for the first time in, in 1979. And he's the one who mentioned how the board arrived uh, wrapped in aluminum foil and packaged in box styrofoam and how he observed it was hand soldered. And it, for some reason that jumps out at me because I, I have not a lot, but I have a four or five kilobods and I seem to think I have some one or more from 1979. 
So I have to look now if I maybe have yeah, that, that July right. issue would be interesting. Now you're curious. Yep. Um, last thing about this uh, OSI is emulation. I found one neat piece of emulation. It's called Win OSI. Uh, for Windows 95 and NT. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I, I I don't know if they have a Mac version or not. I try to find it, but I don't see it. I think this is also emulated in a mess. I'm going to assume that it's emulated in a mess because I believe I saw it before. But I like trying to find standalone emulators. I think you can do a little more with that, and it doesn't require so much overhead. But the Win OSI, uh, we'll have a link to it. I actually tried that out for a short period of time, and it seems to be rather full-featured. I'm anxious to you know, move on with this, and I'll update the history of personalcomputing.com website with some instructions on how to put it to use uh, when I take some more notes. But it has, um, it operates like the real thing compared to what I saw in videos of it operating. It has everything needed to get started, including the ROM. Uh, it loads up. It asks you that single letter question. Do you want to do a cold reboot? Do you want to do a warm reboot? Um, and then when you hit the appropriate button, you do a cold reboot. It asks you what your memory size is and you type in how much you want for your RAM and, and then it drops you into basic. But some of the menu items in that program also let you connect virtual disk drives and cassettes and you can change the size of the text you can change the character rom if you have a copy of a character rom hmm. that's different it, it it appears to be really full featured and i'm really looking forward to uh playing with that one some more hey let me ask you something so like that runs uh you know that's a 32-bit old windows program so so you cannot run that in windows 8 or windows 7 64 well, is that I right ran it I ran it in Windows 7 64-bit. I did not run it in Windows 8. Um, but here's my my um, here's my question that maybe you know the answer to this or didn't I remember? You know, I'm a Mac user for a long time, and there used to be a product called Virtual PC, and it was made so that you could run Windows on your Mac, and it worked really well. It was the first, there were other there was another emulator called soft windows and I'm getting to this history, but I'll keep it short. It basically what was cool about virtual PC is it emulated the hardware and then you were really running like real windows, you know, on your Mac instead. And of, you were most likely running a 32 bit version of it. Well, so, so my point is I remember finally Microsoft bought them and then with virtual PC, it became a tool where you could run virtualized windows on windows. Okay. So, stack them. so I guess I need to look that up because wouldn't that, that might be a, a, a solution to running old windows program on your modern windows so that you can run these old emulators. I'll have to look into that, but right. This... You could run windows 98 on your windows eight and may, then run the old emulators. Maybe Well, actually Microsoft or uh, wait a minute. Uh, who's the big uh, virtualization company out there? VMware. Uh, VMware does have a personal version uh, for free for personal use. Oh, really? Uh, virtualization machine. But I think you still have to install your own copy of Windows. So if you get an old copy of Windows 95, oh, you, yeah. you can you run just, into virtualization. Yeah. Um, but this uh, Win OSI does work in Windows 8.1. How do I know? Because I just did it. Huh. Yeah, I wish me and you were local to each other so we could have like a all-day workshop on emulation. That, that's something I've always wanted to get more into. I kind of just... Yeah, I mean, that... So. School of emulation. We'll have to work on We could do it virtually. Yeah. One day. So moving along, I am going to be covering MOS Technologies Chem 1 and the Cosmac Elf. So first, starting with MOS Technology Chem 1, it was launched in 1976 by uh, MOS Technology. You should know what MOS stands for, right? It's like the name of a, 
it stands for something like circuit related, right? Well, the only MOS I remember is metal oxide semiconductor. So yeah, that's, that's what they used. That's what it stands for. Okay. <laughs> so, so the name of the company is MOS Technology. And uh, so anyway, back to the Kim one. Kim was short for keyboard input monitor. And it was a small 6502. That's that seems to be a common denominator here, right? Based single board. It was computer. cheap to make 6502 systems. Yeah, and so that kept the price down. And in this case, MOS Technology made the 6502. <laughs> so oh, that worked out well for them. So that kind of made sense. So so basically, MOS Technology was a semiconductor designer and manufacturer, and they were based in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Oh, I know where that's at. I've been there. Is that not too far from you? Right. Well, it's about uh, two counties away from me, and but it was about uh, two miles from Commodore headquarters. So probably it's safe to say um, they were most famous for the 6502 microprocessor. Now, why and, I don't see Kim Ones in the thrift stores around here, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, in fact, in late 1976, Commodore Business Machines, or CBM, you know, Commodore, they acquired MOS, so they, they bought them up. And, uh, and they also, of course, acquired people that worked there, especially a guy named Chuck Peddle. He was the leader of the 650X group at MOS that designed the Kim One and, of course, the whole chipset. And then, so anyway, he, he designed the Kim One primarily to show off the features of the 6502 chip to engineers. Yeah, you because know, they wanted, to, for them, the money was in selling their chips and, and associated chipsets to go with it. But it did end up finding a, uh, a rather large market with hobbyists outside of, you know, engineers that wanted to put it in their own machines and stuff. So the Kim one became a um, product. So anyway, it sold for about $245 as a kit, and you could build a complete system for less than $500, typically by adding a used terminal that you might, you know, you might get secondhand or, you know, an old, really old one and a cassette tape drive. Um, the Kim one had a one megahertz 6502. It had 10, 24 bytes of RAM. It had six, a six-digit LED display, and it had a calculator-style 24-key keypad. At Commodore, Chuck Peddle went on to convince the owner, Jack Trammell, that calculators were a dead end and that the future was, in fact, in personal computers. So you might say the Kim One was, uh, you know, sort of launched the computer industry with Commodore which obviously they're not known for calculators, even though they made quite a number of them through the 70s as well as other products earlier on. I have a couple. It's safe to say that Kim One led to the Commodore PET 2001, their first uh, computer uh, in 1977. And in the show notes, you're going to find, so basically I'm just going to cover sort of a short article there about the Kim One. Do you have anything to add to it? you ever got your hands on one or... No, I wish it did. I, I only actually got my hands on something similar from another company. The nice thing about the Kim One is the interface. Uh, it is different than what you're used to with a conventional computer because mm -hmm. you only had the six-digit display, although it interfaced with external displays um, and you know enhanced designs. But you entered, you basically entered all your programming in hex code. It's it's not like programming the Altair, but it is like programming the Altair, except you don't have to flip so many switches. You just put your two-digit hex code opcodes in, and you program it two keystrokes at a time, and then you run it and you watch the displays. Um, I used something about a decade later in an electronics class called the Heathkit ET3400, hmm. which is basically a microprocessor trainer, but it was the same concept as the Kim. It had a keypad with six-digit display, a 6502, some interfacing stuff, and some memory, and it, it's designed to compute. So in the show notes, there's a, a few um, 
some links and two of them are primarily just links to some more information one being the wikipedia article which is on a lot of these systems the wikipedia articles are, are pretty decent and you know this is an audio podcast and uh so there's there's pictures on the internet so you can go there and get some more information and, and look at some more of the pictures there's also a link to uh, oldcomputers.net and their article on the chem one which is particularly good it has some very nice clear pictures of a chem one um, and then i did a link to an article from uh, Engadget from just about two years ago. And it's about a rare Commodore Kim one that hit eBay. And it and it talks about showing you the, the pet's bare bone roots. So if you look at the picture of this Kim one, it says a uh, Commodore MOS uh, badged, if you will, the label or whatever, where all the earlier ones, most of the time you see it, uh, you know, just says MOS technology. So Very I actually, interesting. Yeah. before I did this research, I kind of thought it was the other way around. I thought, it was more rare to get an MOS technology one that more were sold through Commodore, but actually that turns out to be the reverse of what it was. So, you know, Commodore didn't do a lot with this and moved on making other computers. Um, you know what? And I didn't see the, I'm trying to see, does it have the, how much it sold for? No. So I'm... I didn't, I didn't see it in there, but there's quite a number of comments about it, but it's an interesting article. So check that out. And then moving along, I did a link to the incredible Kimplement, which is a Kim One uh, emulator. So the webpage here is by the the author of it, and he says he feels like it's the closest um, the closest to the real experience of running a Kim One. Quite honestly, I didn't I didn't dig into it a lot, but there you go. You know, I'll be looking at that. <laughs> I mean, it's something I'd like to spend more time with. Looks like it has uh, like a terminal output along with the LED displays to go along with it. So, yeah, yeah it's probably implemented as, a, as an enhanced or expanded cam, yeah. which, which is still fine. It probably works in an original style. I find it interesting, and, and I'd, like, I'd love to see it running or see someone using it. or It's just a little bit over my head on, on trying to use one of these things that way. And lastly is I actually own this, and I, I uh, put it together, but then... But again, I, once I did that, I held on it for a while and I sold it. But is uh, you can buy a microchem from Briel Computers. So Vince, it's Vince Briel's site, okay. Briel Computers, the microchem. Yeah, let's see how much this sells for. $99? I, think, I might just yeah, and it's a save kit. my pennies. Wow, okay. And that's getting pretty close to you know what it's like to use a real chem one, you know, a reproduction. So there you go. Still, does that have like video out so you can hook it up to an external monitor? I think so. It's got VGA, doesn't it? And that, oh, oh, that's that, a serial port. Serial port. But even so, uh, for what it is, for what the Kim one originally was, you it's could pretty neat. most likely interface this with something. And you can, if you're a 6502 uh, assembler guru, you can have that with this thing if you just want to interface, you know, build a robot with it, make it do stuff, uh, make it control a remote control car. <laughs> yeah. People oh, did that possible. kind of stuff back then. And it was very difficult. I did that with that Heath kit, which is a similar configuration. It was fine. Uh, do I want to do it again? I don't know. It, it, <laughs> it took a little extra work and soldering to do the interface, but it was still fun. It's, it's, it's great to just work hardcore with the microprocessor at least once in your life. Yeah. And of course, people are still doing that in very similar ways, but with uh, Arduinos and Raspberry Pis. Yes, sort, of, I, sort of the same stuff, really. That's just... how I'm doing it now. Which I'd love to do, but it's, again, slightly over my head. I just was never that techie with some of that stuff. But 
All right, moving along. This next one I think gets pretty interesting, at least to me, because I didn't, I mean, I've known about this this machine for a long time and seen pictures and read about it over the years. Just didn't really fully appreciate it until I started digging in some research here. But is the Cosmac Elf, which was a, uh, it was first introduced in a series of articles in Pupper Electronics magazine from 1976 to 1977. And it was a RCA 1802 microprocessor based single board computer. Less um, powerful, right? But still. But useful. similar to 6502? Yeah, probably the same uh, command set. And what happened is, uh, so that was a kit. You had to buy the parts and put it together. And then a little bit later on through, uh, a, through a couple of different companies, one Netronics and one called Crest Electronics would advertise on the back pages of a lot of electronics magazine. And they, they would offer low-priced, you know, pre-assembled kits. So you could just order it, you know, like the Microchem, and just build it yourself. Uh, yeah, based on the design. They certainly didn't go all out on the perf board. Uh, <laughs> it's a nice little small device. You know, looks like what you flip switches just like an Altair to program it. Yeah, so it was a, you know, it was a a very early personal computer, you know, full-fledged computer that included uh, built-in ROMs. But that's the interesting thing about it is it was is slightly after some of those early S100 machines, but in looking at it, it actually sort of looks like it's sort of more like an Altair and all that because it's got those toggle switches. Yeah, maybe it's so, an S one hundredth. Yes. <laughs> so it is. It describes it here as having a CPU integrated DMA. Oh, for memory access. And so it featured a set of toggle switches, or or a hexadecimal keypad, both actually, not or. You could use either or for input, and then two hexadecimal LED displays for output. It came is two, with uh, the base configuration of 256 bytes of RAM. That's like the Altair. Uh, but you could use expansion boards and raise it up to either 4K or 32K. In 1977, RCA themselves decided to release their, their own commercial version of the ELF, and it was called the RCA Cosmac VIP, or VIP, which cost $275. And then later, in 1978, the Nectronics ELF 2 was released, which was basically a cheaper and, and much more improved version of the original. They uh, touted it and, as the world's most practical computer and sold the kit for just ninety nine ninety five, which that's pretty cheap. Yeah, eight. Wonder where they defined or how they defined practical because with just a two digit display, what can you get out of it? Well, you know, how, I can answer that because the, okay. the the cheaper it is, the more practical it is. Oh, is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It almost seems like a couple years earlier, the the, the like the ZX eighty, you know, the Sinclair ZX eighty. Um, you know, uh, the ZX80 was ZX. built in its that's era. ZX80. ZX, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ZX80 was uh, built, you know, in its era as a practical computer. Yeah. But this was built sooner in its era as right. a practical computer. The world's it, most. It's a still neat little thing. Um, yeah. You almost build one of these yourself just by looking at the schematics. It is, it, or it was what it was, and it is what it is. And, um, you know, it's very um, reminiscent of that time frame and, and all these. So there's a lot of similarities between all these machines. It's almost like a computer trainer in a way. Yeah, I think so. You can buy, so I looked at, so there's a link in the show notes to Lee Hart's 1802 quote-unquote membership card. And according to his site, it was just updated in July and that, or it says some status of in May that you can still buy these boards uh, and you can basically make your own little mini uh, sort of Cosmic Elf, essentially, same thing. 
Okay. And it's pretty neat. It's like it fits in a little uh much smaller like a tin can or what is it? Well, what is it? What are those can? strong mints called? Altoid. Yeah, like an Altoid mints can. Oh, what they're shoving Arduinos into now. Yeah, yep. So that's pretty neat. So uh link in the show note there. Uh Lee Hart's eighteen oh two membership card. And then there's a link in the show notes to a site that has the original article from August nineteen seventy six, Popular Electronics. Build the Cosmac Elf, quote unquote, a low cost experimenter's experimenter's microcomputer. This is why it takes me so long to record. See that? How I have to <laughs> bite your tongue as you slow talk. down and enunciate and I have to keep it re-recording. Anyway, and then two other um, links here. Get messed up. Oh yeah, this is a great site too I found. It's CosmacElf.com and they it's the home of the Tiny Elf emulator and a museum exhibit for 1802 microprocessor and apparently they just did a museum or did a i'm sorry a display or exhibit rather at the um the last vcf midwest in uh, the chicago area which um okay that wasn't too long ago i think this summer is when it was so there's lots of great information here lots of pictures there's the tiny elf emulator and i think um i want to say that they even have it for the palm os well lee hart did the the little membership card thing? I think he's also associated with with this site. Perhaps I thought okay. I saw that. I'm trying. I'm, I'm looking at some of the emulation. It looks like the Elf did support video out of some sort um, because they're showing an emulation, a I guess a graphic that was done or a program that was in a popular electronics magazine that people could put into their Elf mm-hmm. to create a starship animation. Uh, yeah, and that's the classic shot. That Star Trek uh, ship on a oh, little yeah. TV, little teeny, teeny TV screen. Uh, lastly, too, there's there's another link to the RCS Elf emulator. So there's another emulator too. So it had a pic, what they called a Pixie graphics chip, which created the graphic output. Hmm. Because the the emulator here looks like it uses a virtual version of an 1861. They call it uh, the Pixie graphics chip. So I guess it worked in conjunction with the 1802. Or 1801, what that processor was. 1802. Yeah. And there's some pictures on that Elf emulator, the other site. Is that where you were? What are you looking at? I'm looking at the Cosmic Elf website now. The other one? Okay. Well, there's some good pictures on... So there's some good pictures on all this stuff. Yeah, it is. It's really nice. I should have paid more attention to this. I, I knew of its existence, but I never really gave it much thought. This is some good information. So there you go. And as you know, as we said at the beginning, there's, there's there were tons of other uh, single board computers but, you know, obviously they weren't this time frame we're talking in. Uh, soon we'll, we'll be covering the, you know, the first sort of real consumer computers that the Tandy TRS-80, TRS the Commodore PET and Apple II. And so obviously those machines attracted a, a far greater audience, especially non-techie hobbyist people. As people could start affording them. And that's, that's yeah. the thing what made the, com, the, the Cosmic I- yeah, Cosmic Elf. I keep wanting to call it Cosmic. Cosmic <laughs> yeah. Elf. Uh, and, and similar projects popular enough to those who don't mind getting their hands dirty is is the pricing Uh, yeah because the pet was expensive the apple was expensive really Uh, expensive people people can get into this and they toy around they have a little fun they get a level of experience so when they move on when the pricing of personal computers comes down they have a head start and you know and so of course the audience for these things were primarily engineers and techies yeah, for and all these single board systems they they were a good stepping stone for a decent amount of money and that's what makes them special so lastly we're going to move into our ebay 
and valuations section of the show. So you go ahead and start it off. This time we're just okay. kind of both, we're not each doing the, you know, we just had to both pick two. Yes, and we usually we try to about. pick ones that have been completed so we can get an idea of the pricing. But unfortunately, I could not find anything on eBay that was, uh, well, worthy of, you know, a link that I wanted to put in. Uh, but I did find somebody selling its current live auction, uh, selling a NASCOM 2 Z80 CPU board. But it's still, it's still active? It's still active. It's got 28 days. And I think this has actually been re listed um it's available it, it's actually in poland it ships uh. worldwide for only a hundred dollars um and and the price is 199.99 but you can make an offer and it's a nascom 2 board it looks like it doesn't have any keyboard though uh but it's got the cpu it looks like it's you know, gee, it almost looks farm fresh like it's been in the dirt a little bit um it it may work but it looks like it needs some cleaning up, uh, maybe some additional ROMs. Hey, um, this just in. Yeah, what's that? What I happened? found I found one that did sell recently on uh, eBayUK.co.uk. So um, I'll give you the link, and we can add it into the show notes. Okay, and it'd be interesting to look at. So, and you know what? And so I didn't. Yeah, find, I didn't even think of looking there. <laughs> I didn't find any that were live, or then any. So there's the link there. And this is only one that's sold. So I guess these things are, you know, reasonably pretty, uh, pretty Either rare. They've been trashed or they ended up in some kind of pile of circuit boards. Yeah. Or they're reasonably sort of rare, even in the UK to find these anymore. But, uh, but check that out. If you're not there yet, let's see, I'll scroll down. Yeah. But it, it says vintage NASCOM two computer, approximately 1980. It sold for a hundred pounds. It's in, uh, the UK and it's pretty neat looking. But anyway, you can take it back over. Or parts are not working. Okay, I see. It doesn't work though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and and in hindsight, I've been to like ham fest and stuff where you find like single boards of computing stuff, and I almost bet I probably passed over like maybe a a, a super board or one of these, and not even knowing it. You know, yeah. that was ten or twenty years, and, and you know, I don't want to know because then I'll just kick myself. Hindsight is great, but hindsight also makes you upset at yourself too. Um, especially when you missed out on a good deal. Yeah, you can't can't own everything. Where would you put it? I just keep my stuff scattered all across the world. Um, the other item I have here is actually listed as quote one of the world's first personal computers end quote, and it is <laughs> it's international. It's actually from it's in Sweden, Stockholm, Sweden. It is a basically a superboard too. It's the OSI six hundred. Um, and you didn't find any in the United States of these? Uh, no. And I searched through uh, the United States um, eBay to wow. get to this one. So they're willing to send to the United States if it ended up here. But it's a seller with zero feedback. Zero <laughs> feedback. So that's a good red flag. Uh, it looks in good condition. The one picture. No, they have three pictures. It looks like whoever had it kept it nice and clean. Yeah. Um, I see the power supply input. There's the uh, RF modulator in one of the pictures. You, but you can get a good view of the board. Looks like one of the buttons is broken. Yeah, it looks it's, Not off the it's right pretty hand neat, side. though. Yeah, I see. It is It is a nice piece. But it. this one did sell uh, for $224.94. Hmm. So not expensive, 
but you know, not cheap either. So maybe a dumb question, but in closing out your segment of this, what could we say these are worth? <laughs> it's probably pretty difficult to say. I mean, single board computers. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Well, no, that specifically that. NASCOM or the you know OSI. Well, considering like Super what we Bowl found, ch- let's see, a $200 NASCOM board that didn't sell was probably relisted. I'm still thinking, you know, I'm thinking maybe 150 to 200. It's well, the, the one sold for 100 and, and uh, 100 pounds, so that's like what? About 150 to 200 dollars. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's the shipping to to ship to the United States and probably any custom stuff because you know it's a computer. It's got well, we don't pay too much in tariffs for incoming computing stuff, but still, you might not get it for. 10 12 months while it goes through customs they try to figure out what it is you know which missile did this come off of um so it's probably fair to say 200 bucks yeah for for these single board computers and and it yeah as i mentioned earlier it's not too much but it's not a little bit so you're going to probably want to really get into working with these things if you're going to buy one on the uh, used market so my auctions you might say I cheated, but on some of these and some like on these particular two, I kind of think this is, this is a good way to do it. So basically what the link is, is you'll go and look at rec- like at all the closed op- uh, auctions that find a Kim one under vintage computing for the first one here. Okay. So just doing a quick survey. Of course, I'm not, wow, look I'm, at not those prices. I'm not digging in on like uh, the condition that it works and what it comes with any of this stuff, but here's one that sold early October for $600, basically buy it now, um, $338. And then interesting. Here's a, here's a Rockwell aim 65 in here for $405, I guess, because it says it's like a, Oh wait, it says working power supply included aim 65 Kim one because they're comparing it to a Kim one. Anyway, okay. here's, here's another one for 810, one for 300. Yeah. Why the difference? 365. Uh, it's just, Sometimes it's timing. That one's from August, the one for 800. Okay. Condition. And then here's one that sold for $1,199 that's working and framed. Framed. See what? It's just like buying, you get a picture framed. It always costs, you know, 10 times more than the picture. And then I'm going to go ahead and mention it. It looks nice. The framed one looks really nice. Because it comes up on the page here. But if you go down to the bottom, here's a Centertech Sim Model 1, which is similar, single board. Sold in a in a custom like a attaché case thing for one hundred and thirty dollars. Single case computer. So now we're gonna have to have a new tier. So that would have been computers. that would have been that was a fine there. But there you go. So how much is a Kim one worth? At, yeah, whatever at you want to pay for it. Well, four hundred dollars on average, off the top of my head, maybe. Yep. Hey, maybe they'll go up after people start listening to this podcast and <laughs> want one. We'll do these eBay sellers a favor. So we have to start documenting some of this stuff, even if, even if our our. What we're saying isn't the whole hundred percent accurate. At least it's you know, no, it shows trends. Yeah. So next, I did the same thing with uh, doing a search for, and oh, interestingly, what did I do? I did a search for Elf first and didn't find anything. And then I ended up doing a search for Cosmac. So what I found was nine results, and uh, two just Cosmac. They're describing as eight K RAM boards sold for twenty eight dollars. Not much, right? And then here's a, a full microcomputer evaluation kit and micro terminal sold for two forty nine. Here's some more RAM cards for about seventy seven dollars. A few more. Here's a a rare uh, computer with manual eight hundred and thirty dollars. Here's an unbuilt wow. evaluation kit computer six hundred ten dollars. And then here's a rare one with color video, four K and sound. It looks like it's in a case for one hundred and fifty two dollars. 
Yeah, it's almost all over the place here too. So that person got a great deal. You know, I think what might have hurt it, that one, and everyone take a look, is because it's in the case, at least that main photo, you don't see the board. So I wonder yeah. if that hurt it actually. So he, does he have, he has, how many pictures does he have? On this Four, one? it says. And then here's another person, $305. Looks like something you hang on the wall and you would use it to turn off the alarm. Yeah, exactly. So some of the machines as we go forward, we may not be able to do this wow. with. But All this... wire wrapped. Oh boy, that's a spaghetti mess. Oh, you're looking at the one for 150. Oh, that's interesting. Though. Yeah. It looks like he just routed all the video and stuff out on one end, the top end or the back end, depending on how you have it setting. Huh. But hey, it's it's what it is. Oh, wire wrap. It says it. Does it say it works? It's not even on the original board. It just, it, he took the concept. Maybe he had the parts or rebuilt it from scratch because it's off the shelf parts anyway. Um, and just built his own mm -hmm. to prototype it. Yeah, it says homebrew Cosmac microcomputer. It is untested, but last known working. That's a good cop-out. Um, but it I, seems it requires some minor troubleshooting. Yeah, <laughs> once you go through all those wires. And, and there you go. There's, um, yeah, there's, a, there's a broad range of these kind of machines. And you had mentioned like Heathkit. And I know Intel and Heathkit and another, a number of other manufacturers made very similar things that were sold for the education market and for training and other stuff. I know a lot of times those come up and you can pick them up really cheap. Yeah, like that ET3400 I was telling you about. Um, I used one of them in electronics class, and I love to have another one. And I had a chance to buy one real cheap at a ham fest. And it's a single board computer. It's just, it's Heathkit styled. Yeah. I just, I walked past it because, several times actually, but I eventually said no because somebody pulled some of the components out and I would have to replace them. And figure it all out. And, and hope that it works. So I can wait a little bit longer. They actually show up. I, I saw one at VCF East. I didn't get it then because I was spending my money on other stuff. But, you know, eventually I'll get one. For me, that's just something I used in the past and, you know, I wouldn't mind having it again. But, yeah, single, single board computing, computing trainers. They called them trainers at yeah. the time. In the late 80s, early 90s. So if you like to, you're interested now and like to play around more with these, I'm, like anything, keep your eye open, your eyes open and, and look. You can you can pick up some for a better deal or get some lesser known machines for, I'm certain, less than $100. Yeah, if you do a search for an ET-3400, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, it's kind of like a Kim computer with the fact that it has the six uh, character display and has the, the, the parts... Tweet some for us. Together. Find some. We and can we can retweet them on the podcast. Twitter. And it has a hex keypad. We should both do that. You know what? We should do that after shows now. What do you think about that as an idea? We could maybe keep our eyes open for some of these, the ones we talked about, then we could retweet them. That would work. All righty. So it looks like we're pushing up to our hour if, if we're not over it, which is good. We're right on track. Uh, so that's going to do it for um, this show. And uh, show five is going to be released on Halloween Day, Friday, October 31st. <laughs> you can find our evolving guide and all the show notes at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. And please send us feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com because we really would love to receive your email or audio comment. You can send us your high-quality photos of the machines we've covered. That means all the machines we've covered. And, uh, and we're really looking forward to, to receiving those so we can start putting them on the site and building a photo album. Uh, we haven't received any, to be quite honest. So, you know, we're still kind of new. But by all means, if you just start listening and, you know, 
Yeah, send an Altair picture, MSI, uh, Kim1, anything. And lastly, please tell someone about us uh, or write a review on iTunes or help spread the word with uh, on Facebook or Google Plus or Twitters. <laughs> perhaps, you're, <laughs> perhaps you're even in a specialty discussion group. So tell them about us. Any last any last words, Jeff? No, this was fun. I'm I'm as I mentioned, I really love these uh, single board computers. I wish I had spent more time with them as in my youth. Yeah, I know. Sometimes we feel like we're sort of cheating some of this. Like there's so much other stuff. There's more we could talk about about these, or there's more out there. But you know, we got to keep moving forward. Oh, you know, I don't have the list ready for next for what we're doing on the next show. But whatever. I know. Actually, I do. I know we're doing the Heathkit H8. We were going to do it this show, but we decided to push it off and just do um, single board computers. So we're doing the Heathkit H8 and a surprise as of right now. That means we don't know. <laughs> no, we know. It's just, <laughs> I don't have it we'll in front of me. Just keep it a surprise. So we'll see you next time, everybody. And remember, hug your old computer today. It misses you. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.